Hello and welcome to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 139. I am your host, Noah Rochetta, and today I'm going to share the audio of a recent interview I did with Dr. Sarah Shaw, author of a new book called Mindfulness, Where It Comes From and What It Means. Dr. Sarah Shaw is a faculty member and lecturer at the University of Oxford. She has taught and published numerous works on the history and practices of Buddhism, including an introduction to Buddhist meditation and the spirit of meditation. Without further delay, here is the audio from my interview with Dr. Sarah Shaw. What inspired you to write this book? It's something that's always interested me. I've always noticed that mindfulness gets described in different ways, in different historical periods. And then uh, Casey Kemp and Nico Odysseus at uh, Shambhala actually asked me to do a short history of mindfulness. So I had to make it very short, which is very, very difficult. Uh, But I did enjoy doing it. It's something that's just always interested me that I often read articles about mindfulness and they can be quite rigid about it's this or it's that or it's this. Um, And I must have a hundred on my computer. And some of them are really quite dogmatic. But what I liked was the way that in different settings, the word just gets used slightly differently and has a slightly different feel and application with an underlying thread of what it is. But people that keep things alive by sort of changing formulations a bit and perhaps looking at them in new settings. So that seems the mindful way to approach the subject. So I found it great fun to do. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's uh, great. It's interesting how, uh, like you mentioned, how many different ways there are to use the word, right? When somebody says, oh, I'm trying to be more mindful, you almost have to ask, well, what does that mean to you? Because there are so many interpretations of what it means to be mindful, huh? Mm-hmm. I think people are different and what one person needs may be different from another person. So. Uh, I wouldn't want to be um, rigid about how it should be interpreted. Yeah. Well, that's great. And and tell me a little bit about your background with uh, with Buddhism, with mindfulness. Um, where did you where did all that start? Your interest in this topic. Well, I started uh, meditation many years ago um, when I was at Manchester University, and that's where I first really encountered the word mindfulness in a Buddhist setting. Um, Amusingly, my meditation teacher told me that he hadn't met many people who were so unmindful that I really needed it more than most. (laughs) Um, I think that's a classic problem for academics who can get very over-focused and lose awareness of their surroundings. So I was intrigued by it then, and I tried to practice it, and I have ever since. Um, I'm not sure I've ever really found out what it is, but I'm still practicing it and uh, trying to arouse it. Yeah. Well, I, I love how the title of the book um, you know, brings up right away two things. Where, where does it come from, and what does it mean? If you had to answer that in a short way to somebody in, a, in an elevator, how would you answer that? Where, where does it come from and, and what does it mean? Um, 
I would say where it comes from is there's only one place it can ever come from, of course, and that's from ourselves. That's the only, the only person who can be mindful and do something about it is oneself. And what it means, um, I would say an attentive alertness to what it is that brings health to the mind, something like that. Yeah, I like that. I think it seems like sometimes, um, at least the way it's it, that mindfulness has evolved in the West, uh, there seems to be a tendency to think of mindfulness as an altered state. And it seems to me like what you're describing is more of an altered trait. It, it's a way of being that, that can affect everything that we do yeah. rather than thinking, well, here's my normal, ordinary life, and when I'm mindful, I'm separate from that. It's this other state mm -hmm. that I'm in. Mm. Ideally, it would be nice to be mindful all the time. I think we all have lapses, but one can certainly be mindful in daily life, and it helps, uh, helps to be mindful in daily life. And one, one needs it, of course, in meditation. So it's something that can be there all the time. How you arouse it under different circumstances might be different, but it's yeah. a quality that certainly according to the Buddhist tradition um, is there when the mind is healthy and um, alert. Yeah. There's a Buddhist tradition called the Abhidhamma and it says that when mindfulness is present, lots of other factors come into play too, like uh, confidence, uh, alertness, uh, good humor, balance a lot a lot of these other qualities come in as well yeah Friendly. that's great yeah. and what's nice is the moment that we are mindful of the fact that we're not mindful we've already started right we've already absolutely it's a good <laughs> it's a good a good point to be yeah. yeah yeah um so what would you say is the biggest uh maybe misconception that you've encountered about mindfulness um, I don't really think very much in those terms, actually. Oddly enough, because I, I am an academic and that's what we're trained to do. A misconception. I would say that the notion that it's somehow something that is very different from our daily experience, and, and I think that's probably one. And also something that um, is owned by anybody, you know, that I, I, that's a particular you know like you can't just say that psychology knows what mindfulness is in a way that uh, the practice-based traditions uh, perhaps don't or that everybody will have found some way of arousing alertness that's uh, and the attentiveness of mindfulness under different circumstances so um, Possibly I'd say the biggest misconception would be thinking that it was something you couldn't do <laughs> Okay, uh, in I, everyday life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I like that. And I, I would agree that that seems to be a very common misconception. People uh, will tell me from time to time, uh, you know, this, th these topics are interesting, but mindfulness isn't for me. I'm not capable of it or, or something like that. Yeah. And I always yeah. say, well, it would take yeah. mindfulness to even, to even make that assessment. <laughs> Exactly. No, and what, what uh, people in my tradition say to meditators when they come and they often say, 
oh, I don't think I'm the sort of person I, who can meditate, you know, I'm too anxious or worried. And we always say, well, that's just the human mind. It's not that you're, you're not different from anybody else. And I think as soon as people realize that, they realize they can do something about it. So that to me is, is the most important thing. Sure. You know, the, this kind of segues into one of the chapters that I really enjoyed in your book where you, you, you kind of talk about mindfulness um, with the analogy of music and specifically with the, with the, uh, the tightness of a string, like on a string instrument, whether it be a guitar or a violin or whatever. Um, you know, when the, when the string is too tight, it doesn't sound the way it's, it, it could, it, the best sound that you can get out of it. But it, when it's too loose, you have the same problem. And so this makes me think of what, what you were just saying with the, the misconception or the misunderstanding, I guess, that people have of this isn't something I can do. It's like all of us are the instrument all the time. You can't help it. That's just, I'm the instrument. Um, so it's my, the strings either too loose or it's too tight. And mindfulness is kind of the, I guess we could say the technique to help us realize that, oh, maybe I'm trying too hard or maybe I'm not trying hard enough. And somewhere in the middle, the middle way is where um, things get a little bit easier because just like the instrument, it just sounds better when it's the right amount of tension. Um, would you care to elaborate a little bit more on that as an analogy for mindfulness and for the way we practice it? It's a very ancient image. Um, and the story is, it's quite an interesting one. Um, a young man uh, decided to practice meditation and he worked so hard doing all these meditations. He, um, his sandals got worn out and his feet all bloody because he was doing all these walking practices, trying to keep awake and practice. And he goes to see the Buddha and the Buddha just says to him, when you were a layman, did you play the lyre? So I suppose it's like the guitar or something now. And the young man said, yes, he had done. And he said, what would you do if your strings were too tight? And he said, I'd loosen them. And what would you do if they were too loose? I'd tighten them a bit. And what happens when you have the evenly tuned, the summer, the calm, tuning of the note oh like you can play wonderful music so I've always loved that image because and then after that he realizes he's been putting in too much effort of course like all people who put in too much effort he's convinced he's not putting in enough <laughs> which <laughs> is one of the characteristics of that state but when he steps back and sees he's been putting too much in and just relaxes then he progresses well so I like it because I think we all notice what it is that helps us keep in balance. You know, maybe you do just need a, an evening just relaxing and not doing anything at all. And maybe sometimes you do, do need to go out and perhaps do some jogging or get some exercise. I think we sort of know something about ourselves, which is like a kind of an internal balance or spirit level, if you like. Um, that's my way of putting it. Um, and that it, mindfulness can really make you more attuned to that as to what is right for you. Because the, as, like a musical instrument, we're all different. Some of us are kind of uh, violins, some violas, some double basses or whatever. You know, that we all have, have a different instrument. And it's really coming to know it 
if you do play a musical instrument, and I used to years ago, you have to kind of like your instrument and have a good relationship with it. And I think a lot of people get a very funny idea about Buddhism that you have to stop enjoying life or negate things. But this is this is is never said, and it's joy is supposed to be one of the factors of awakening. So we all have a, a capacity for joy and for appreciating the instrument we've got. And I think mindfulness is a way of helping us to find that. Yeah. Uh, and I like that what you referenced earlier, that it's not something uh, separate from our ordinary day-to-day -day life. Uh, because I think sometimes when, when we think of mindfulness, we're thinking, okay, that's what applies when I'm going to go sit and meditate or try to, you know, try to be more peaceful or calm. And, but it's not, it's, this is like you said, this, this, this goes into understanding in my day to day that maybe I should jog more or the way that I parent or the way that I conduct myself at work with my coworkers. It's, it's, it permeates all of it. It's not, in fact, that's where it really matters. It's not just when I'm going to go sit on the cushion and try to meditate. It's in my day to day life that this stuff really becomes useful and, and beneficial. And then I think that helps the meditation because we tend to think of meditation as being so very different from our daily life. But actually the same principles apply. If you go into a meditation state, you, you still have to sort of open the door carefully and close the door carefully. If you go into a state of deep calm, maybe, if you're lucky enough, you need to be able to go there, but you also need to be able to come back to the world and be aware of your friends and people around you and that kind of alertness is really and the ability to do that is really the same mindfulness as we need in daily life um, and to make a division between the mindfulness of meditation and the mindfulness of daily life is is a bit excessive i think there is a slight difference because in in a meditation practice you have a much more subtle awareness of what's going on that would not be appropriate in, in, in daily life. Um, but it's still the same principle and the same thing, really. Yeah. More like a fine scanning instrument rather than a general <laughs> survey, if you like. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with, with your book, um, what kind of advice would you say that this offers to someone who's new uh, just learning about mindfulness might be new on the path. And then the same question, but to someone who's more advanced along the path, maybe someone who's been, who's read a lot about mindfulness, about Buddhism and practices meditation, or is this beneficial for both and, and how so? Well, for the first person, it is a history really. So it's just to give people background and context and to enjoy uh, finding out about it. I don't give specific exercises. Um, the, the tradition of practice I'm in, we tend to uh, feel it's very important for people to have contact with somebody teaching them or guiding them. So I don't, I don't just give exercises. Um, I've often had the experience perhaps of teaching a meditation class or of coming across somebody's practice who's tried an exercise they found in a book and it hasn't worked at all and it's frightened them in some way and you never know which ones are going to do that so I try and avoid that a bit and, and that wasn't what I was asked to do anyway 
I don't mean that other people shouldn't. They would perhaps find ways of doing it where that could be overcome. So I would hope that for somebody new, it would just give a bit of general background to the Eightfold Path and see it as something that they can apply in their life generally and not just something in, in books or seems a bit too um, spiritual or out of the way for them. Just something that's very natural that can be applied in daily life. For the more experienced person, I think it's good because I think as one gets more experienced as a practitioner, one, one can develop views about the right way of doing things. And I found those were really challenged by doing this because like everybody else, I have views on all sorts of things. And working on this book, I realized that a lot of things were quite different from the way I thought they were. And that mindfulness has genuinely been interpreted very differently in, in historical periods and used differently. So uh, I would say that that's just interesting and helpful to stop us being rigid in our, in our minds. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I, I felt as I was reading it that similar to what you're, you're saying, uh, it gives so much um, uh, context and background to the history and allows you that flexibility to say, to read it and say, okay, oh, this is where this concept may have emerged or, um, but, mm -hmm. but like you said, it doesn't steer you and say, no, this is what, this is the way to be mindful or this is the technique. It kind of uh, leaves that, I think in a, in a very important way, it leaves you open-minded with how am I going to make this work for me in my day-to-day -day experience? Um, so that's kind of where I wanted to go next with mindfulness um, in everyday life. Uh, something that I try to focus on in, in, in my podcast uh, is extracting um, Buddhist concepts or teachings or anything that's beneficial, but bringing it to how does this work in, day, in my everyday life? Um, because like you, like me, we're all just going about living our normal lives, right? I, this morning I had to get the kids off to school for their first day of school and we missed the school bus on day one. And you're dealing with whatever it is that you're dealing with in day-to-day -day life. How, how, do, how do these ideas, specifically mindfulness, apply or tie into just everyday life? Mm. Well, from early times, it's clear that the problems people had then are much the same as uh, ones we have now. I was just looking at a text where a man says he's living in a house full of children and he doesn't know what to do. What, how can he practice <laughs> the Buddhist path? I thought, well, some things um, never change, really. Um, I, I'm not sure. What, what was the sort of precise question there? That um, uh, Yeah, so specifically with, the, with this book, how... How would you say uh, it ties into giving me, the reader, uh, a, a greater understanding of how mindfulness is something that applies to my ordinary day-to-day -day life, and it's not just something that I'm going to read that takes me off into this you know, esoteric world that I live in in my mind when I'm trying to, to be mindful? Mm. Well, I hope I include the esoteric. I'm, I think some things are... You know, I want to mention them as well because I think there are areas of mindfulness which are for advanced practitioners. I'd say they're the same principles, though, as the ones we, we need in daily life. 
I think how it would, would I hope, help somebody is that they just see that um, if you have an alertness in the mind and health of mind, anything you do can be changed by that and can become meaningful to you and to have meaning. Um, the one I really enjoyed, I, I do feel I didn't, couldn't spend enough time on many forms of Buddhism that I would have liked to have done because it, it was, I was told to keep it to 40,000 words, which is very, very short. Um, the one that what I really enjoyed finding out about though was the housework, for instance, that particularly in the Eastern traditions, they really know how to make housework itself a mindfulness exercise. And I really enjoyed thinking about the theory of that. If you can be mindful in the moment, according to some of the Eastern philosophies, you're actually enacting Buddhist principles in the world and that will affect everything else. And so if you can just sweep your floor very beautifully, the whole world will, be, will, will feel that. This is the Huayan, the, the Chinese philosophy of interpenetration, that everything in the world is connected to everything else. So if you can do one job really attentively and beautifully, the washing up, the sweeping, then the world is changed uh, by that. Now, clearly one's own world is changed by that if one does do a job beautifully. But I think that was something I found really inspiring myself actually, that anything you do, can, if it's done with attentiveness and real care, can, can change at least your own world anyway. <laughs> Whether yeah. it changes the rest of the world, I don't know, but it's a wonderful idea, very inspiring. Yeah. So I hope people get tastes of something like that, that it can just, it means that everything we do can have care and have meaning. And, and that's really what, I found through reading um, and discussing with practitioners too. I did a lot of discussion with practitioners from different traditions and what, what meant a lot to them. And that's really, I think, what I found from that, that care in, in daily life is, is, and everything you do can, can really change things, small things in life. Yeah, yeah. just the small things in life. I, I really like that approach. and I kind of like what you're alluding to with this, I feel like I've experienced, you know, looking for something big and meaningful out there and finding that it was while doing the dishes that things kind of come together and you're like, oh, this is it. Like, uh, this is just as meaningful, me standing here and doing the dishes as, as me hiking some mountain to go meditate under a tree, um, like, like taking the, those two worlds and, and combining it's just this, it's just this, what I do in my day-to-day -day life, this is what I do. Um, I really like that. And I think mindfulness becomes such a powerful uh, tool in those ordinary things, in the way that I do the dishes and the way that I'm uh, handling getting in the car because we're running late and we miss the school bus or whatever, whatever the mundane thing is, it's not ordinary and it's not mundane because it's, it's a, a unique uh, moment in time that is not being repeated. That's been a, a fun uh, realization for me and my own personal practice is that the ordinary day-to-day -day is it. That's the extraordinary. <laughs> and particularly important if you have young children, 
because yeah. no second time with children you know that's yeah. you're doing it now so if you can what more can you teach them than to just be happy doing ordinary things to find happiness and alertness just in everyday life and if you can teach show them that or teach them that there's that's you've shown them the most important thing for them really yeah there are no second chances <laughs> we know the so it's it's nice you you were able to do that with them yeah uh well great i, I i'd like to know how how would you say how has mindfulness um benefited you in your uh day-to-day -day life and maybe maybe not mindfulness in general but just the process of writing this book what was the, the experience like for you learning a little bit more about mindfulness um well as i indicated earlier mindfulness isn't my natural metier i think or rather it's something i found very difficult um so i enjoyed just having to think about it all the time actually because because then of course you sort of have to practice it. And, and I did find it really interesting and very frustrating and challenging too, because it was a short book. So there are lots of things I have to say, and I think, oh, I really ought to explain that in a few more sentences, or somebody's going to pick up on that and say, oh, it's wrong because you should be saying such and such. And I just thought, well, I can't do that. You know, it's a short book. So um, trying to distill something in, in a short space of time is quite a mindfulness exercise in itself. You have to be pretty alert to your reader and to um, yourself really and to what's going on. Great. Um, all right, well, maybe on a final note as um, to someone who's, who's listening to this, who's thinking, yeah, that might, be, that might be a book I would be interested in picking up. Um, what, what would you recommend? What, what, what would you say is the biggest, uh, takeaway someone might get by reading this book? What I, I hope it would show is that mindfulness is something we can all do. And it's like a kind of birthright. We, 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 you know, it's something we can all try and do. Um, and that also it will tend to make us happier in, in the way in a way that will be, if you like, ethical. Um, that mindfulness tends to make you more alert to other people. And there isn't a conflict between doing things for yourself and other people. And I think we sometimes think there is, you know, that I don't need to do things for me and for other people. That mindfulness gives the balance of inside, outside, and both inside and outside. And if one practices it, one, one finds, um, I hope, the middle way, the, the right way ahead. So that's rather a long, long thing to say, isn't it? So I haven't got any snappy take out from it, <laughs> other than worth trying. <laughs> I, I like that. I think that's a, a, a good, a good takeaway, a good invitation uh, for someone who, who might be listening to this thinking, uh, I might, I might pick up this book and and see what it's all about. Uh, so, which leads us to the next thing. For someone who's who's interested, where is the best way to find the book? Where is it available? I think if you go to the Shambhala Publications website, you'll easily find it there, and on um, all the big sites like Amazon and all the other ones, I think you'll find it there too. 
Um, it, I, they, they seem to be very, very good in publicity and distribution. So I, I think it will be uh, easily accessible. Great. Now, and it's it, an audible book as well. <laughs> oh, I forgot to say it was an audible book as well. I did read it out for um, audio and I think it might even be on a free trial at the moment. So uh, you can hear it on audio. Very oh, difficult to read things out. You have to be very alert, but uh, <laughs> I did do that. <laughs> well, great. And if someone wants to learn more about you, do you have a website or somewhere where people could read more or learn more about you, other projects you might be working on or things of that nature? I, I'm, I mean, I am an academic, so all my academic work is on the University of Oxford uh, website and University of South Wales, UK, I teach for as well. So I think I've got something on the website there. And my other books are all on, on the sites like Amazon and Goodreads and things like that. Um, you'll find other books I've written. I like stories, so I've translated a lot of Jataka stories, if people are interested in that. Oh, great. But it's, it's my work that's interesting, not me. It's, that is the, the books that are the, uh, the things that I've enjoyed doing and which I hope people will, will want to look at. Well, great. Uh, I was just reading um, the Jataka stories, the story of uh, Prince Five Weapons. Um, is that <laughs> one that you're familiar with? Yes, I, I translated it for Penguin uh, Classics in, in my book on the Jatakas. I think it's possibly my all time favorite Jataka story. Oh, wow. That's fine. Yeah. That's one that we, I, I talk about the, often with my kids. Yeah, I did an audio of it for um, my meditation group, the Samata Trust, as well. So that's on their website. I told it on that one. I think it must be my favorite Jataka story about the, the boy who. Uh, against all the odds triumphs and it's just uh, it's just very funny as well so yeah what i like about that story is that he has to fight a monster and when he's overcome the monster he doesn't just leave it at that he makes sure that monster behaves well afterwards it's a monster eating things in the forest eating up anybody who comes into the forest so the prince overcomes him and he is set free, but at the end, he doesn't leave it at that. He says, now, you start being friendly to other beings. And the monster does. And people come and see him. So I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful story. Yeah. That's great. I'm going to have to check out your, your other books. sideline. <laughs> well, it's funny because this podcast episode will, uh, will be... Uh, immediately following the previous one that was about the story of the sticky hair monster. So this sideline in this podcast is actually kind of a follow-up thought on the previous oh, one. So that, that works pretty well. <laughs> oh, good. I thought it was a bit of a sidetrack, but it is my favorite story, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I want to thank you again for taking the time to join me on this call. And I'm, I'm excited to, to share this podcast episode and to introduce my podcast listeners to some of your work, uh, specifically this book, Mindfulness, Where Does It Come From and What Does It Mean, which is available now. And if anyone has any follow-up questions or wants to know more, I'll have the podcast episode. It's usually set up where people can comment on it. And if 
some really interesting question or something came to mind, uh, I could reach out to you by email. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me as well. It's been very nice to chat with you.